Welcome to Resilience Unraveled. Hi everybody and welcome to Resilience Unraveled, a podcast that examines all aspects of personal and organisational resilience. A huge all-encompassing subject that covers the ability to thrive in life by harnessing your cognitive, emotional, physiological and contextual abilities. I share stories from people who have thrived despite remarkable obstacles, as well as highly successful practitioners and experts across a range of topics. And this podcast introduces their amazing stories and expertise, as well as my own reflections, perspectives, strategies and tips, which come from my own synthesis of themes and trends from wider learning. You can go to qedod.com forward slash extras to access offers, tools and resources, including free articles and eBooks. For those of you that would be interested in supporting our work and contributing more proactively, you can find our new Patreon page at patreon.com. Then search for Resilience Unraveled. So, let's get started. Enjoy the show. Hi, and welcome back to Resilience Unraveled. And it's my joy to welcome Linda Rossetti, who's sitting in front of me at the moment, all the way from Boston, Boston Massachusetts. That almost <laughs> came out the other way there, didn't it? So um, oh, we're gonna... <laughs> we've got two literary names on the show today. So Rosetti, Christina Rosetti is a member. Is, is she That's some correct. sort of relative? Yeah. Uh, a poet, yes. And Dante Gabriel Rosetti was a pre-Raphaelite painter. Fantastic. So how's Boston today? What's the weather doing today? Uh, it's dreary and rainy. My sense is it um, it probably is uh, going to stay this way for quite a while. So we're not we're not smiling very much about this right now. I'm sorry. The lobsters will all be hiding. <laughs> exactly. Thank you for but, having me. It's great to be here. It's an absolute pleasure. I love your background. I don't know if it's one of those um, fake backgrounds or it's the real thing, but if it's a real thing, it's a lovely piece of art in the back. This is podcast um, gold is talking about what's behind you, but they, you know what I mean? Uh, it is it is my messy office, so I appreciate oh, the yes. kindness uh, being uh, your kind eyes looking at it. But yes, it is uh, It is definitely a real background. But it's a joy to have, with, have you with us today. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, Linda? You know, I am somebody who is uh, trying to get the world to think differently about something that's uh, universal, and that is how we respond to disruption in our lives. I come to this having been uh, in the corporate world for more than 30 years, but find myself very curious about um, kind of upheaval that we all encounter and how we respond. And so for the last decade, I've done research in that area. And I've written two books. Uh, one was called Women and Transition, and the most recent was Dancing with Disruption. But all of it is really an invitation to get us to think differently about the things, whether it be a job crisis, a breakup, a, you know, a, a change in our health, and a zillion other things, to think differently about those moments and, um, and, and frankly, respond with hope and um, expansion. Okay, so so let's just do the. Um... Do the basics, how you define a disruption. And if you want people to respond differently to it, what's the sort of traditional way of responding to it, would you say? Sure. Well, disruption, you know, as you know, Dr. Russell, can happen in any New Zealand ways. Uh, you know, it can be the traffic jam we encounter on the way to the office um, to something more meaningful, like the loss of a spouse or an unexpected layoff from uh, from work. And so the disruptions that I'm really very interested in tend to fall in a category that either impact our functioning, right? For whatever reason, we're not able to carry on our basic, our, our normal baseline activities, mm. um, or those that really call into question our thinking about our self-concept, you know, who we are and, and the kind of the mental model we've used to, to process 
our, our the world we, we live in. And so I call those gateway disruptions and those are the ones I'm most interested in, really. They're the ones that really um, call into question are thinking about who we are or how we make meaning in the world. And typically, you know, we've been socialized to kind of run the other way when these happen, you know, to, you know, we we sadly, um, you know, we stall, we we retreat, we disengage often when these happen. And, you know, the the crisis in that is that um, oftentimes these are signals for real opportunity for growth and expansion that we miss um, if we respond in ways that we've been socialized to respond. So um, given that we've been socialized and given that they previously worked for us, um, and I work, work, use the word worked advisedly, why would we want to change? Because that's the sort of the law of carrying on, you know, carrying on and on and on. I mean, some would argue expecting a different result, but we're sort of socially conditioned, aren't we? Because there's some reason for doing it in a particular way. Yeah, and I think that yeah, you no, know, you're already on to the point there, uh, which is, you know, um, I'm not sure we all think that it is working, right? We we might behave in this way, but I think we're we're more and more realizing that perhaps there's more, and uh, and you know, and that's really the the opportunity, right? That there's the yellow brick road in front of us to mm. say, well, maybe maybe there's a way to consider something different. And and I think that that's really where my work starts, right? I, I've done a decade with a research, right? Which started out um, talking with nearly 300 adults from all walks of life in terms of um, what they experienced at these times of upheaval in their lives. And it was fascinating because they were patterns that emerged from that, that we tend to not talk about in life, but in fact, um, they're pretty provocative. And so, um, you know, my work is really about educating people on what 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 might be happening at these moments and then allowing people to make their own choice, right? This isn't kind of prescriptive or, you know, standing up kind of waving a finger saying, you must do this when you encounter fill in the blank. It really is educating people so that they're empowered to maybe consider other options. And yeah. I find that in that, um, there's enormous opportunity. So you mentioned some of those patterns. What What, what might be examples of those? Well, you know, I think one of the most uh, fascinating ones that I found in the research is that we often, we're, we, we in society, we're kind of conditioned to, to, to use two words interchangeably, and yet they mean very different things when we're facing uh, disruption. And those two words are change and transition. Mm -hmm. And what I found in, in listening with folks is that changes um, are very often, you know, alterations or variations in um, a known outcome, right? You know, we, yeah. you know, we lose a job, we need to replace income, right? So those, that's kind of a, um, we can articulate what it is. And, and ultimately, in my research, what came out is that we pursue changes when we have a fixed self concept, we say, okay, we know exactly who we are, and we need to make XYZ changes. But what we're doing is we're leaving intact our thinking about who we are and how we make meaning in the world. Versus when we explore transition, what we're doing is we're welcoming instability for a time in our mm -hmm. self-concept. And, you know, it is, is much less about pursuing a known outcome, but really re-examining the assumptions upon which we anchor our sense of who we are and how we make meaning in the world. And so transitions occur when there's a shift in what holds value and meaning to us versus changes are really all about making alterations or variations on a fixed self-concept. And so educating, right, Dr. Russell, educating people on just this notion that there are options 
um, can oftentimes be very um, enlightening, right? And it allows people to do the Holy Grail thing, which is to ask themselves a new question, right? And I think that that's the power, right? In these moments that, you know, if we can, you know, have a new context, right? That we can put our experience in, you know, our experience of a job loss, our experience of a health mm -hmm. crisis. If we can place that in, a, you know, a new understanding, um, then we get to ask new questions of ourselves. And I think that's mm -hmm. really where, um, we can break away from some conditioned responses and kind of explore some new. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. It, it is interesting that you talk about the uh, semantics of this, because I, I personally think it's important. I think we we undervalue the narrative that we we set ourselves. Um, and I did. I was interested because I know you've worked very much in the corporate world and been in HR and such like, but um, I, I was very minded once when someone told, asked me um, or said to me, it's not change that human beings fear, it's the process of being changed through a change management process, usually by a manager and a leader who has no idea. Because actually <laughs> the concept of change is, is absolutely natural. We're changing, we're migrating, we're transforming, we're progressing. Every, every single cell of our body is in constant you know, energetic states. But there's something about the way that corporates work or those those interesting moments in our life when we come to turn a corner that are quite interesting. So I quite like this idea of transformation or I, I actually use the word progression, but transformation is a great word as well. Um, they, they all mean something being in constant motion rather than sort of a, a you know, a, a, the old Lewin idea of freeze, unfreeze, refreeze that, you know, that sort of idea that sort of makes no sense as human beings, is it? No, no. And you're so right. I mean, everything on the planet is, is is designed to constantly change. Mm. And yet, you know, uh, we're socialized to hold on to these static approaches. And, and I think that's where a lot of conflict comes from. And he was a very interesting man who did some research in the 70s at Columbia University in New York. And, and he observed a lot of people going through these progressions or transformations. And he said, you know, there's really two levels of activity that's happening. The first level is this notion of practical, right? You know, if somebody's doing a change management effort in a corporation, you know, they have one set of outputs they need to make versus the old set, you know? So it's very practical. We need to do B, now we used to do A, how are we gonna do it? Mm -hmm. But he said, you know, there's another level that is oftentimes absent from our conversation. And that level is the intense emotional response that happens mm -hmm. in relation to that change, right? And, and, you know, the reality is, is that when we move, right? When we, we change our mental model, we move our thinking about who we are, our emotional system responds to that as unsafe hmm. and it throws an enormous amount of activity at us, whether, you know, whether our, you know, familiar emotions are anxiety or fear or regret or shame or perfectionism, or, you know, everyone has their own favorites. Hmm. And hmm. I think that that, you know, that Mesero was the gentleman's name. Um, you know, that was very interesting because very few people really focus on these parallel tracks, right? A lot of people spend a lot of time on, look, this is how we're going to change and we're going to do from A to B and that's what we're going to do. And that's very practical. And there's a lot to that. I don't want to diminish. There's there's a lot to affecting change in our world. But my, my work also honors the fact that there's another dimension to this, which is how we respond emotionally and making sure that we recognize that a lot of the emotions that we may be experiencing mm -hmm. um, are really responding to the fact that we're in this unstable period for a time. And that's interesting in itself because I, th I think sort of corporately we've sort of we've used the sort of Kubler Ross um, framework to sort of guide our efforts and such like. But the thing is, you know, as you as you look at neuroscience and you look at neurochemistry and such like, that doesn't 
the thing is, I, I, you, you tend to find when you you explain any model, human beings have the, the desire to fit into any pattern that you give them. So it's, it's very easy to say, here's a model to recognize it. And everyone goes, yes, yes, I can see that. But our neurochemistry didn't work that way. And we're really actually dealing with cortisol, in, uh, uh, you know, or, or dopamine or serotonin, really. Once we get those three things worked out. And it, it's always, you know, your standard chance. It's always struck me as quite interesting how little coaching we do through change, because actually coaching is about how we navigate the future, how we how we create that new narrative with ourselves, for ourselves, and other people as well. Um, and I think it's it's one of the interesting things that we have a very, still have a hugely commanding control leadership construct. And um, and I think things like engagement and authenticity have actually made that worse because um, all the evidence shows that everything's getting worse and yet we're still banging on using these sort of same techniques over and over again. So I like I like the idea of talking about something different. I'm not going to bang on about my own book. That's a story for another day. But I think even something as simple as changing that narrative to disruption and um, transformation is is just saying something different. It allows people to just examine the the opportunity because it's not a problem. The opportunity for the different perspective, isn't it? Absolutely. Well, now you're hired as my new PR person. <laughs> I think that I think, other way around, I, think that, <laughs> I think that I think that the um this notion of yeah giving people a new way to approach something that's common is 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 that really the work that I'm trying to do and yeah. you know I've written this new book Dancing with Disruption and in in it in each of the chapters is an exercise to try to help people kind of bring the work into their own experience and one of the chapters talks about narrative. So I'm, I'm really smiling as you talk about narrative, because I think that as, as I've studied this and, and I've also had the great good fortune of working with some universities in the United States and, and doing collaborative research on this, what we found is really changing our narrative is an incredibly powerful shift that can occur and really help people kind of move forward from this. And, and this, and it's simple. It's not a thousand times complex, you know, one of the, the techniques that we, we tested in the research was changing from a chronological narrative yeah. to a value-based narrative to say, yeah. look, you know, most of the world will say, you know, if I meet you, you know, Dr. Russell, I would say, you know, I would go through my little quick chronology when in fact, if we're in a period of transformation, we actually need to disengage from the chronology and, and anchor on things that hold meaning or value to us. And with that, the aperture on what's possible and what growth might mean just opens exponentially yes yes because actually we're dealing with a world where the past doesn't matter what matters is the fluidity of the present now i love your concept and in my my own book we talk a lot about dancing with things and i talk about relationships as being a dance between people and you talk about the, the way that you operate with your employees as a dance because it is isn't it and so some people say sadly it's a, a dance of aggression and a passadoble and for some it's the waltz and for some it's the argentinian tango and they really should not be working together <laughs> but it, again it, again it's that lovely idea of pushing and pulling and leading and following and 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 actually seeing it as an integrative process rather than something that's that's just forced upon people or you know or that's not navigated or that's not found a way through and i think it's that classic thing isn't it um, on the, on the dance floor dancing with lots of people everyone manages to dance without falling over each other and we have a, a tremendous capacity as human beings to be able to find our own way and i think i think in leadership terms we're just spoon fed so often with rubbish i mean i was running a leadership program last week and it just horrifies me still to hear managers and leaders saying i am the manager i am the leader i am paid to give a solution i am paid to 
And it's, you know, it's my starting point. If you're doing the work of someone a layer below you, you should be having a pay cut. And that always shocks them because actually that's the truth. You know, get your people to think for themselves, you know, let them let them work out what the dance is and let them start to to dance it because that's really exciting, isn't it? You know, uh, Dr. Russell, you remind me of some work that I did. I, I had the great good fortune of serving as the head of HR and administration for a large global company. And the reason why I mention it is when when I was in that role, we had to take 200 acquisitions and knit yeah. them together to behave as one organization. Yeah. And it was really challenging, right? Because what you're talking about is getting behaviors to change, right? Because when I started the job, I would go to meetings all over the world. And people would come in and the first thing they would do is they would introduce themselves and the acquisition that they came into the organization from, right? So their connection was with their past. past they yeah. weren't really connected at all to what we were trying to do together. And we had this, this choice, right? Were we going to be a certain leadership team or were we going to be a confident leader team? And the certain leader team would basically say, here's the seven things I need you to do. I need you to go out and do it. I'm going to measure your performance against it. And there's no degrees of freedom. Versus the confident leader is going to say, you know, here's the goal we need to do. And I'm going to give you some parameters, but ultimately you have to find your way to how you're going to achieve it. And I think that, you know, thankfully we had a very enlightened CEO who was on the confident leader side, not the certain leader side. And that's how we did it, right? You know, we we really set up some values and behaviors that had to be a part of what was going on. And then we gave some people some degrees of freedom on how to make it happen. And I think that I learned so much from that, which really speaks to what you're talking about, which, you know, today, particularly for in public companies, right, we have 90 days to do everything because every 90 days we have to report, report to the street about what we've done. And, yeah. and what that does is it, it tends to, to lean towards this certain approach because it's like, look, we don't have time to fool around. We can't learn. We have to execute this. We have 90 days. Yeah. Versus versus that is so stifling to an organization, right? That that under imagines what that organization is capable of because you're never giving people the opportunity at any interval, right? At any 90-day interval, the opportunity to really apply what they could do and move forward. And I think that that's the, you know, the tragedy that I see in terms of, you know, this notion of, of um, leadership and management. It's too much prescribed. When in yeah. fact that really undervalues, right, the the skills that are at the table, and and it allows, you know, we're we're silencing voices that could really radically positively change the dynamic, yes. and, but, but and it's, that's the fine line. And that, and it's a challenge, isn't it? Because we operate within a social construct, and if the social construct is ninety days, then you can't be, you can't have this other world. And the and the thing is, it's really interesting when you watch people, and you we worked in M and A's, I've done. M&A people aren't interested in the size of the opportunity. They're in, they are interested in the certainty. They're interested about not making a loss. They're not worried about making an extra five pence. They're worried about not losing five dollars, aren't they? So I'll mix my currencies there. And I think you get this, this um, I can't remember the phrase, uh, a zero-sum game. I think it's something like those. Uh, well, it's it's the fur line rut and the cream of the crap, you know, example again, isn't it? It's this idea that we we defer to the just just about average. Um, but it's interesting because, of course, if you work in the public sector or non-profits and such like, um, you you find the same thing going on. Because I think socially we are we we come from a we come from a world where we expect strong, clear guidance. It is interesting how many times when you're working with people, they'll say things like, "Well, I don't want to think. I want you to give me the answer." A because it's easier. B because then I don't have to do any work. And C because actually that's what I that's how I've been trained. I've not I've not really through education and through having a succession of 
poor, heinously terrible leaders have not learned to think. And it's and I don't think we value thinking anymore. We talk about cognition, but we don't value thinking anymore. We don't value insight. What we value is really compliance, which is which is where engagement and all these ideas come from, really. It's doing what you're doing for, for less money than you should be paid. It is. There's so many. There's so much in your remarks that we could we could um, chat about. But, you know, I think this notion that we have probably not created a safe environment for people mm. to take risks. Right. And I don't mean risk, reckless risks. I just mean risks. ideas. Right. The, idea of the ability. Yeah. <laughs> Risks you know, are not reckless. And, That's the point, isn't it? Right. And, you know, I, I, I think informed risk taking is really magical. And I think that, you know, leadership today, you know, I, I, I was trained at one of the fanciest leadership training grounds on the planet, right? Yeah. Uh, the Harvard yeah. Business School. But I think, you know, as I read what comes out of that organization, even today, yeah. um, just tells me we have so much runway on this, right? You know, yeah. the work that you do and the, the thinking that you're doing is, is fantastic. And it really, it strikes at the heart of what is needed so that we can unlock the possibility in teams. And, and I think that that's where our work intersects, right? It, you know, I, I go to the individual level and try to give people some some vocabulary and understanding of what's happening at moments of conflict so that they can actually reach and, and activate their skills and bring that to bear on the challenges of the day, whether that's in a nonprofit or in a large public company or at their kitchen table. It really does matter because, you know, um, if we can engage people's voices, and when I say voice, it isn't our, what you hear audibly, it's really their essence and their power as an individual. If we can engage that, um, you know, we'll be so much better off as human, uh, you know, as humankind. Yeah. And you can see why people have done the great resignation. You'll see why people have, you know, looked at this idea of entrepreneurship. It, and for some people, it really genuinely isn't about money. It's just simply about freedom. It's about that idea of exchanging really certainty uh, for for managed risks for having the freedom, the capacity of failing at using our own efforts. And actually, isn't it fascinating that the very thing we want in organizations, we have with people who we drive out. We drive them out of our organizations and then they become the very person that we wanted us to be. And no one sees the irony that it's a systemic culture within the organization that was the problem, you know, reinforced and driven and mitigated by the, as you call them, the certain leaders. It's a really interesting phrase. Well, it's so interesting. I mean, I think that, you know, um... I don't know that I have a lot of data to know who exactly we're driving out of the organization. I'd love to get some access to that. But what I do know as somebody who was a leader in human, you know, human capital around the world mm -hmm. um, is that we for many years operated under a social contract with mm -hmm. our employees when we had an employee and, and that meant a lot of things, right? You know, they, they gave us their, hard work and their good ideas and their their commitment to excellence when they were inside or working, whether they were inside the walls of a company or doing it from their home office didn't matter. Um, or from the, you know, driver's seat of a, a van, right? We had we had, you know, thousands of vehicles on the road at Iron Mountain, you know, every day. Mm. Um, but that social contract has really been like, you know, yeah. whittled away. You know, we've we've tried to optimize margins. And so, you know, we have at least in the United States, we have, you know, 30 years with virtually no real wage growth for large yeah. pieces of the population. Right. Yeah. We have we have development and training dollars that that, you know, have been, you know, effectively outsourced or yeah. in most cases eliminated 
from, you know, from the corporate investment profile. And, you know, I could go on and on, but I think, you know, ultimately this, this, this absence of a social contract is, is really, even though people think we're winning and we have the highest corporate profits ever, to your point, I think we've actually lost a great deal and, and that's going to hit us pretty hard because that social cost is much higher than yeah. whatever the you know growth is in the you know stock market or whatever whatever index you choose to choose to look at. So you know my you know my work and I, I sense yours as well. You know is really about you know trying to get us to rethink this social contract and our role in it because I think that individuals have an enormous potential that remains untapped. Um, part of that is because when we respond to disruption, we too often stall, disengage, or retreat instead yeah. of recognizing those moments as as um, opportunities to engage so much more of ourselves yes. and turn up the volume on our voices. So, you know, that's um, I, I uh, I'm really honored to have the opportunity to talk with you about this no, today because it's something I, I believe I, so strongly about. Me too. And I often start these conversations desperately, you know, aiming to disagree with you, so stimulate a debate and end up just agreeing with you. But one of the things about the social contract I find fascinating, especially in a, in a country like yours, which is so large, is the extent to which, you know, culturally uh, it's so different in different places. I mean, we're a small country in comparison, but we see, di- I see a different, I've moved from the south to the north, and I see a massive different, difference, even in 300 miles. And having spent time in the south of America earlier this year, it's staggering the different social contract there. It it is, it is. I mean, I work in Africa and all over the world, but it 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 is quite quite up. Oh, it's quite confusing, actually. When you go to certain parts of America, it doesn't seem like the America we see on television. It doesn't seem like this forward-looking first-world country. It's quite unusual. We have. Um, I'm choosing my know, words our, very our carefully. Democ- right, I can see that. Uh, I, I, you know, our democracy is an ideal, and it is still a work in progress. And certainly, there are grave differences across our country. You know, uh, you know, when we think about even our response to immigration, um, to the folks that are the folks that are our citizens, and you know, depending on the state that you're in or the county that you're in in the country. Um, your experience can be radically different. So, yeah. you know, we're working hard um, to address all of that um, while the car is still going 60 miles an hour down the road, right? Yeah. You know, so it is um, it is a change effort um, that is continual. Um, and, you know, it's heartbreaking that we haven't had more progress on things that really matter a lot. Um, yeah. But there's no one, well, no one that I know that's sitting on their laurels saying we're done. Uh, we're working pretty hard to keep it going and, I, and, I do hope and so. have the conversation. I do hope so because it doesn't look like that from the outside. And we, I mean, there's there's a there's a move to you know neo populism at the moment, right, across Europe and across America and such like. And you know, the trouble is that we've been seen as socially liberal, and we've ended up with all this inequality, and therefore the was you know the response is to become uh, uh, neo populist and move to the right. But of course, it's it's we've not we've never actually been liberal, and certainly your your country has never been liberal. Ours never has. It's actually always been to the right. And um, I mean, your Democratic Party is probably where our, you know, Tory party would be. And, uh, you know, we've had a couple of attempts of lurching left and they've always been, it would always run away from screaming. So we've never really embraced a sort of uh, a more left-leaning um, uh, philosophy like Bernie Sanders or, I'm not saying the right or wrong. I'm just saying we've, we've, we're, we're very good at pretending that we've done something as an excuse not to do it. And demonizing the thing that we didn't do to create the solution for a problem we never had, and it's a 
it's a brilliant trope that we need to learn from at the moment, I think. Well, I, I think in the States, we have a, a lot more variability uh, than perhaps gets um, presented in the press. And, and our Democratic Party has moved to the center, mm. you know, over the last decades, uh, you know, but, uh, you know, as a Northeasterner from the world where Bernie Sanders lives, I completely understand the progressive and support it. Uh, and there's lots and lots of initiatives across the country in support of that. And but it is very different, you know, when you look regionally, you know, if you take the coasts, you know, the east, the northeast coast of California, you know, Washington State, Oregon, you know, those are, yeah. are very different places than if you and I parachuted into Missouri or Tennessee. Yeah. And I'm not judging them. They're just different places. Different. And I think that, yeah. you know, we our work is not done, as I mentioned, you know. Our democracy as an ideal uh, is still an ideal work in process. You know, the great Barack Obama, you know, really put the vocabulary to us. And, and you know, and as he walked out of the presidency, he said, you know, we need to really address the values. And, and you know, if we are about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, we have to be honest about where we're executing against that and where we're falling short and address that. (laughs) And, you know, and I think that that's, you know, some of the most exciting work that's happening in the United States right now is really addressing that because that's honesty. um, honesty So, so different places dance at different places at different rates. So you better tell us a bit about your book, actually, because I'd be very discourteous and not giving you the chance to tell us. Oh, no, you you have given me a chance through all of our conversation, uh, right? So Dancing with Disruption um, is, um, a book that empowers readers to respond differently to disruption and gives them a roadmap on how to navigate moments of upheaval and conflict in their lives. And it's born off of a decade of research. Um, uh, I dealt with nearly 300 people um, from all walks of life who went through really radical change. And then 80 of them worked with me on these exercises in the book. So the book is is a great read if people have the opportunity to take advantage of that. Um, and also, you know, the work has spawned a series of accreditation courses or continuing education courses that uh, I and my organization run to help people who are leaders or coaches or social workers or human resource professionals to give them the tools they need to affect change in the environments that they work in. And so um, I thank you for giving me the opportunity to join you and thank you for the opportunity to mention my book and work. And, you know, it's um, it's really a, a, a labor of love, right? This, I believe strongly in our need to change the way we respond to disruption. And, um, you know, I invite everyone to think about that and uh, and join me. And, you know, just looking at Amazon as we chat, um, your books on all the UK site, which is great. Um, there are at least five different Dancing with Disruptions. So make sure you get hold of Linda's, Linda Rossetti's book, which has a huge number of five-star reviews. That's, that's amazing because normally there's someone who says I don't like the color of the the um <laughs> the, uh, the cover and some something so I'll give you one but uh, you know congratulations on that so I shall be buying that copy thank and you. um thank you so much it's absolutely fantastic so how do people get hold of you how can people approach you what's the way of getting in yes touch um, the two easiest ways the first is through LinkedIn right that's the easiest way to do it and the second is just visit my website which is my full name and I think it's in your show notes yeah. the only trick is my last name has two s's and two t's uh, and aside from that, that's those the easy way, easiest ways to contact me. Or just click on the link because that's you know that's that's the yeah. modern way. Who who, who knew? <laughs> we, we need to learn to never need to never need to spell anymore. Linda, it's been an absolute joy talking to you today, and I could ch- chat with you all day, but uh, I need to be respectful of your time. But thank you so much for joining me today. It's been an absolutely fascinating conversation, and um, 
And uh, I really wish you all the best with everything you're doing. I think it's absolutely remarkable. Well, I've loved it. Thank you. And I look forward to continuing our conversation sometime soon. I do hope so. You take care. Hi, everybody. I hope you found that episode useful and interesting. Feedback is always welcomed. And if you're in the mood to subscribe to us or even leave a comment on iTunes or Stitcher, that would be amazing. If you want to suggest ideas or even people you would like me to interview, then reach out to us at qedod.com forward slash contact. As I said earlier, you can go to qedod.com forward slash podcast for show notes or follow the links. And you can go to qedod.com forward slash extras to access offers, tools and resources, including free articles and ebooks. For those of you that would be interested in supporting our work and contributing more proactively, you can find our new Patreon page at patreon.com, then search for Resilience Unraveled. I look forward to being in your ear next time around. Take care.